Welcome to the Voice Over Work podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Newton Media Group, a family of creative services. Today is Friday, January 14th, 2021. On the podcast today, we'll take a little deeper look into a book introduced in a previous podcast with a chapter-by-chapter look at Dead in Her Boots, an absolutely gripping J.R. Steele detective murder mystery, book two, written by Bradford G. Wheeler, narrated by Russell Newton. Chapter one. It's a bitch being old, and it's a bitch being shot. Being both, I wasn't in the best of moods. I suppose I should be grateful I was alive, and the people who were trying to kill me were arrested, and I didn't matter to them anymore. It was doubtful they'd ever face charges for all the murders they committed. One thing was for sure. Someone would go to jail for the killing of the FBI agent. I made another bourbon and tried to look at the positive things. It was a sunny, warm evening in Florida. Most of my bills were paid, thanks to an overly generous client. Thanks to a lifelong friend, I had a place to live and two growing puppies to keep me company. I remember him saying, You don't have much of a life. The dogs will be good for you. Sad to say, it was true. They gave me a reason to get up in the morning and required my attention for a good part of each day. I heard it first and then looked up to see Kate screaming in on her Ducati motorcycle. She took off her helmet shook her blonde hair the same color blonde hair as her dead mother the mother I was supposed to protect one more fuck up to add to my long list of fuck ups she marched onto my deck and turned off my CD player no hello how are you today she popped the CD out give me a break you've got to stop listening to this depressing stuff Merle Haggard's swinging doors? I've never heard of him. Why do you listen to this depressing stuff? I didn't tell her I'd just popped out Johnny Cash's Sunday morning coming down. I said, I listened to it so I can appreciate having you in my life. Chapter 2 The next morning, I punched in the code and drove to the lower level parking area for Kate's office building. She selected this building because of the tight security. I wasn't sure what the other firms in the building did. Their names sounded high-tech. But I was glad Kate was taking security seriously, especially now that she seemed determined to pursue this type of work. I parked, walked to the elevator, and put my hand on the biometric scanner. The door opened. The elevator would take me only to Kate's floor or the lobby. I pressed the button for Kate's floor. The sign on her door read, Douglas and Associates. I assumed the associates meant me. Here also was a hand scanner. I let myself into the small reception area and said, Hello. Kate shouted back to come in. To my right was a conference room. I turned left and went down a short hall to a large open room filled with computer and other electronic equipment I couldn't identify. There was a private office off to one side and kitchenette at the back of this room. Kate handed me a cup of coffee. Where do we start? She asked. Let's start with the easy part first. 
pull up Google Earth on that big flat screen TV. Let's see what the place looks like. She worked a remote, then a wireless keyboard. The screen lit up, and she began moving the image until she handed over the location of Prestige International Export-Import Company. I said, zoom in so we can see the whole neighborhood. It was about 10 miles west of Route 1. It was mostly open land around it. I had Kate zoom in a bit more. Looked like an old agricultural processing facility of some sort. Probably five or so acres fenced in with three large buildings next to each other and smaller outbuildings. Chapter 3 I was at the Sunset Bar, looking out at another pleasant evening. I'd finished cleaning and repairing the grapeshot revolver, walked and fed the dogs. I felt I'd earned a drink. This was my second. The bar stocked Woodford Reserve bourbon. It's one of the advantages of drinking in a bar frequented by rich boaters. It's a small batch Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey produced in Woodford County, Kentucky. A mixture of copper pot still spirits from the company's Woodford Reserve Distillery and column still spirits from the Brown Foreman Distillery in Shively, Kentucky. Woodford Reserve won gold and double gold medals numerous years at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. It's also the official bourbon of the Kentucky Derby. At least, that's what the bartender told me on a slow night. I was about to order a third when someone behind me said, Mr. Steele? I turned to see a heavy-set older woman. She wore a flower-patterned dress that resembled a tent. Yes? She spoke in a rush with the hoarse voice of a heavy smoker. My mother is missing, and my son works for Mr. T. He said you could help me. It wasn't clear if the he was her son or T. I still felt I owed T a lot for all the help he'd given me. So, as much as I wanted to tell her to fuck off, I said, And your name is? I'm glad his flowers. My mother is Mary Jones. She started to say more. I held my hand up. I'm expecting company. Please get together all the information on your mother. I'd like to talk to you and your son. Would tomorrow at T's shop about 10 a.m. work? Then we can decide what to do. Chapter 4 I woke to a wet nose gently caressing my arm and a wagging tail rhythmically thumping the side of the bed. It was Apollo this morning. Zeus's tail also wagging, was behind her. I hadn't figured out how they decided whose turn it was to wake me each day, but as soon as the sun was up, they wanted me up. A worthwhile reason to get out of bed and face another day. Once I finished our morning routine, I headed to the gun shop. It was quiet there this morning, but Tony had a contact in missing persons, and Officer Victoria Martinez. Tony said, I don't know her personally, but they tell me she's reliable and knows how to handle distraught people. I wrote down the number and thanked Tony. I thought Dylan's mother was more screwed up than distraught. I went through the door behind the counter and into the back work area. Lee was the only one there and was machining a custom part. Morning. Anything for me to do? Sorry, J.R., not right now. Something might come in this afternoon. I'll let you know. I went back to my bench. 
Having nothing else to do, I decided to disassemble my Colt pocket pistol. Technically, it's the model 1908 vest pocket pistol designed by John Moses Browning. They were made between 1908 and 1948. Manufacturing was halted only during 1943 to 1945 due to demands of World War II production. Mine was manufactured in 1948 and had all the safety features that were introduced over the years, including a standard slide-locking safety catch, as well as a grip safety. In 1916, Colt engineer George Tansley invented... Chapter 5 I met Dylan at the police station the next morning. He looked washed out, like he hadn't slept. How are you doing? was all I could think to say. I'm okay. Thanks for having your attorney there. It was a little scary, like they thought I did it. They asked a lot of questions about my sister, who her friends were, where she worked, and more. I realized I didn't know much about her life and what she did. I'll pay you for him. But don't worry about that. Police always start with family members. They've probably already cleared you, but they'll check on where your mother was. But she didn't do that. It's just part of what the cops are required to do. Officer Victoria Martinez met us. She was very sympathetic and had a reassuring manner. She started by saying, Call me Vicky. We went through everything we knew, and when we gave her the nursing home, she tensed up. Dylan didn't seem to notice anything, but it was clear she'd heard of the place before. Dylan relaxed as the process went on. Officer Martinez was skilled at handling people who were distraught, even panic-stricken over missing loved ones. When we were done, Officer Martinez said to give her a few days, and Dylan left. I asked if Detective Holland was available. She made a call and took me to a small conference room, saying he'd be there shortly. I sat back, thinking he would make me wait just to annoy me, but to my surprise, he arrived quickly. Now what do you want? Good morning. Nice to see you too, detective. Having a busy day? I slid the envelope across the table. He sat, pulled the photos out, and went through them one by one. Chapter 6 After walking the dogs and leaving them at the Custom Marine Building, I drove to T's to meet Hank. I stopped at a diner for breakfast. I didn't want to wear out my welcome at Mabel's. The shop was busy when I got there. Most everybody knew me from all the time I spent hiding there. I found Hank. Uh, Billy Ray said you have another custom-armored car project you want help on, I said. T had someone videoing your demonstration of the last one. He turned it into a marketing piece. Seems he has another South American client who wants one. But he doesn't want a Mercedes-Benz Sprinter van. He insists on a Cadillac Escalade. We're picking up a platinum luxury model from the dealer tomorrow. He wants it yesterday, but with all the special order parts we need, that won't happen. But i got to get to work on it right away. It's fine by me. I don't have much to do, and with everything the T and all of you have done for me, I'm happy to help if I can. Hank said, I got a long list of what he wants. Most of it's the standard stuff. Bulletproof glass, run-flat tires, explosion-resistant gas tank. Well, this is no big deal, but 
the buyer insists on a war wagon turret like you designed for the Sprinter van. I thought for a moment and said, That design isn't going to work in an Escalade. The van interior was tall enough to crouch under the turret and then stand up extending it. I know. That's why I need your help. If you wanted a van, I'd just use your design from before. Okay. As I said, I don't have much to do. Give me the interior layout he wants, and I'll see what I can dream up. I was actually excited about having real work to do. We set up your workbench. Chapter 7 I arrived at my attorney's office at 10 to 8. Billy Ray was in the parking lot. I waved. Dylan got out of the truck. He looked like he hadn't slept well. He tried to smile when he said good morning. Then we took the elevator up to the third floor. The reception area was empty. Harry's assistant wasn't in yet, so I just called out his name. Come on in. Get some coffee. And I'll meet you in the conference room in a minute, he yelled back. We sat. Dylan looked nervous, sipping his coffee. I told him about the questions the police would ask and explained why they were doing it. If you don't know, it's okay to say you don't know. If you're not sure, just say that. Harry walked in. No gruff manner now. He was soft-spoken and reassuring. He explained there was a lot that Dylan would have to do, and he briefly outlined the list. Some could wait. Others should be addressed right away. He had a few papers for Dylan to sign and told him there would be a lot more. I can go with you to the police department, but I can't do it today. I don't believe you'd need me there. You aren't a person of interest. They'll just want to learn everything they can about your mother and sister to help them solve the case. Any other questions I can answer now? Then Harry waited. Finally, Dylan asked, Can Mr. Steele go with me to the police? Yes. I can insist that if the police don't allow J.R. to be with you, then they wait until I'm available. I'll leave word for Detective Holland. Then he can decide. In a very uncomfortable and foreign situation, Dylan felt safer with me around. I was teased. Chapter 8 The next morning, after walking the dogs, I headed to T's bungalow. I turned west off Route 1, and after several miles, I turned into T's long, dirt driveway. I'd spent weeks here when people were trying to kill me, and Kate stayed for a while when they were trying to kill her, too. As I approached the small ranch house sitting in a rough yard, the garage door went up. There was a driveway alarm, so he knew I'd arrived. His boss hoss bagger motorcycle was parked in the driveway, big bike for a big man it has a liquid cooled 445 horsepower v8 engine and goes like a bat out of hell t stepped into the garage to welcome me let me show you what i've got i followed him into the kitchen t pointed to the counter as we walked into the kitchen it was illegal unless you had a special federal permit but not as bad as i feared a Russian VSS Vinterez 6P29 fully automatic rifle. It's called the Special Sniper Rifle. It has a built-in silencer and is designed to be disassembled and carried in an unobtrusive case. Perfect for assassins. 
I picked it up. You know what it is? I know they told me it's Russian, silences, and it'll pierce body armor. I'm sure you can tell me a lot more. It's a suppressed marksman rifle that uses a heavy subsonic 9x39mm SP5 cartridge and armor-piercing SP6 cartridge. It was developed in the late 1980s by TSNII Takmash and manufactured by the Tula Arsenal. The Tula Arsenal's interesting, founded by Tsar Peter I of Russia in 1712. And Chapter 9 In the morning, I took Kate's box to the gun shop. First, I measured the wall thicknesses at each end. Then I cut a piece of styrofoam thick enough to fill in the difference. Next, I added weights to the left side until it balanced. I put the weights on the balance scale and measured out enough number three steel buckshot to the exact weight. After pressing the buckshot carefully into the styrofoam, I taped the shot in place. It took a while to carefully remove the liner on the left side and glue in the styrofoam. Once it was dry, I put back the liner. It looked good and balanced. I decided not to mess with the activation device for the bug. Nothing I could think of would be less obvious or work better. I cleaned two shotguns, went to lunch, and then headed to Harry Black's office. Dylan was in the office conference room when I arrived. I sat and asked Dylan about what he was working on with Hank. It was the only positive thing I could think to talk about. Harry walked in with a file folder of papers for Dylan to sign. He briefly explained each one. Dylan looked lost, but nodded his head and signed each one. He then told Dylan that as soon as the court approved Dylan as executor on his mother's and sister's estates, he could start disposing of assets and paying off any outstanding bills and expenses associated with the funerals. Since he was the sole heir, any remaining proceeds would be his. Harry said, I've notified the Social Security Administration and the Florida Retirement System of your mother's death. You'll receive half of what your mother's state pension was until you turn 25. My assistant will print the forms, fill them out, and she'll file them for you. I don't know how long it will take before you start receiving monthly payments. You'll need to file... Chapter 10 It was a warm and breezy Florida morning. I was drinking coffee on my back deck when Bones pulled in. His vehicle was a Lincoln Navigator, silver-gray color with fancy chrome wheels. He opened the back door and stepped out. At the same moment, both front doors opened, and his two men stepped out, sweeping their eyes around, on guard for signs of trouble. Well-trained. J.R., what the hell is this? T said you lived on a boat. I think of living on a boat. A boat, it's meant to be in the water. He walked up onto my back deck, reached down and petted the pups. I noticed his two men weren't as easy about the dogs. I guess they might have had different experiences with dogs. It's a long story. T set it up for me after my jeep got blown up and my landlord kicked me out when my apartment was ransacked. But you don't get seasick or worry about dropping things in the water. You gentlemen want some coffee? Bones started down below, asking, You mind if I take a look? Sure, but watch your head. His two men declined coffee and stood on the back deck, just looking around. 
Bones came back up to the deck. Cute, but a bit small for my liking. He was now looking over the boatyard and the marina. Tea on all of this? Everything inside the fencing here, but not the marina or the places over there, I answered. He looked around again. Looks like my old sergeant doing okay for himself. Let's go see his ranch. I'll drop the dogs off over at the marine shop, and then you can follow me to T's ranch. I hoped he wasn't expecting the King Ranch or Ponderosa. We pulled up the long, dirt drive. Chapter 11 In the morning, after walking the dogs, I picked up Dillon and went to Harry Black's office. I had all the papers organized that Dillon needed to sign. I gave him a brief explanation of what each one was. He signed, and Harry's assistant notarized where required. The death certificates had arrived, so we mailed off everything in several packages. Next, we went to the bank. The manager said how sorry she was for Dylan's loss. Dylan mumbled something politely. I'd filled out all the forms I'd picked up yesterday for Dylan. He signed. We opened accounts and transferred the money from his mother's account to the trust account for her estate, and then did the same for his sister's. Not much money in either, but the accounts were open. We were selling the cars and house, and the rental security deposit would arrive soon. From there, we drove to the funeral parlor. I didn't want Dylan to have to go through the upselling bullshit that they so often try on grieving family members. I smiled and outlined what we wanted. Two plain caskets and a simple service. Dylan wanted to get it over with, so we picked an evening just a few days out. They wanted a deposit, so I put it on my credit card and told him not to worry. He could pay me back. Do you want to go to your mom's house? I can help you clean out her things. No. Billy Ray has some friends coming over Saturday to help me. I'd like to get back to work. It was depressing. I tried to act upbeat and ask him what he was working on as we drove back. As he talked, he seemed to brighten up a bit. I've never really been near boats before starting to work here a little while ago. These are really fancy, expensive boats. Later today, I'll write... Chapter 12 Not much happened the next day. I went to the gun shop. Lee, the owner, said he had something interesting for me to work on. He walked into the large gun safe and came back with a long gun in a hand-tooled leather case. Have fun, he said, and walked away. At my bench, I unzipped the case and pulled out a Winchester Model 1887 lever-action shotgun, originally designed by famed American gun designer John Browning and produced by the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. By the looks of it, this one had seen some rough duty, or just neglect. The Model 1887 was one of the first successful repeating shotguns. Its lever-action design was chosen at the behest of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, best known as the manufacturer of lever-action rifles, such as the Winchester Model 1873, the gun that won the West. Browning suggested that a pump action would be much more appropriate for a repeating shotgun, but Winchester management said the company was a lever-action firearm company and felt that their new shotgun must also be a lever-action. 
They were only manufactured between 1887 and 1899. They came in 10 and 12 gauge. About 65,000 were manufactured. This one was the rarer 10 gauge. Then, Winchester introduced the model 1901, which was strengthened to handle the newer smokeless cartridges. The shotgun has become iconic for its use in the 1991 film Terminator 2 Judgment Day and the video game Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. One in this shape would go for about two grand. Chapter 13 I spent the next day at the gun shop. The parts for the Winchester Model 1887 lever-action shotgun were in, so I finished assembling it. I took care with the final cleaning, and for good measure I polished the hand-tooled leather case. I wrote it up and put it in the gun safe and took the paperwork up to Tony. He handed me a gun in a burlap sack, saying, The boss took it in on trade. I hope he didn't give him more than 50 bucks for it. Clean it up and we'll see if we can sell it. 50 bucks seemed generous to me. It was a single-shot Ivor Johnson 16-gauge shotgun. I read the serial number. 18912, manufactured in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. I'd seen them in better shape than this on auction sites for between 80 and 120 bucks. It's a cheap old gun, but Ivor Johnson's Arms and Cycle Works is an interesting story. Ivor Johnson was born in 1841 in Norway. He was educated as a gunsmith in Bergen in 1857 and had a gun store in Oslo. Johnson emigrated from Norway to Worcester, Massachusetts in 1863 and continued his work as a gunsmith by trade and an inventor in his spare time. Seeking new and creative uses for his partially idle manufacturing equipment after the American Civil War, he worked not only gunsmithing locally in Fitchburg, but also providing designs and work to other firearms companies, notably making pepperbox pistols for Allen and Wheelock. The company attracted several talented immigrant machinists and designers to its ranks, including Andrew Fireberg, and O.F. Mossberg. Mossberg would go on to form his own company, which is still producing quality guns today. The primary rep... Chapter 14 I made a point of arriving late to Kate's office. I wanted to deal with both Kate and Bones at the same time. The napkins I had scribbled on last night had been transferred to note cards. They were in my pocket. I walked into the conference room set my McDonald's coffee down, smiling broadly, and said, Okay, today's the day. I didn't say anything, but their look was sour. We're going to wrap this up today. Too much bullshit and waiting around. I sounded more self-assured than I was. Kate, you write up your report to Threat Connect and email it off by the end of the business today. Here are the high points you need to include. I handed her a small stack of 3x5 cards. Bones, we hit the Prestige International Export-Import Company facility tonight. How many men do you have here? He had an amused look on his face. He said to Kate, Seems like J.R. been doing some thinking. T. said he was good at thinking. Looking at me, he said, There are six of us, seven counting you. Okay, here's how we're going to do it. I took the Google Earth blow-up of the facility I'd asked Kate to print and began pointing to spots. 
Kate's going to park her van with all the fancy electronic equipment here. I'd like Lazarus to be with her. She can monitor and jam cell phones in the areas needed. She'll hack into the security camera system and monitor it or disable it. We believe the facility is empty at night. Two of us will set up here with high-powered rifles. The other four will crash the gate here and enter the main building here. I pointed to the spot on the photo. I have a list of the equipment we'll need. I handed Bones a stack of cards. He glanced through them and handed them to Lazarus. No. Chapter 15 The next morning I went to the Oasis. I'd left the dogs with Mabel for the night. I went in the kitchen and poured a cup of coffee. Only one person in there, cleaning and prepping items for the day. Is Mabel here? Before she could say anything, Apollo and Zeus came charging at me. I tried to calm them down. I had my arm in a sling again after the banging around last night. It was sore, and I had an assortment of bruises. Mabel followed them. I hope they weren't any trouble. Never. They're always welcome. She turned to the woman working and asked her to make me a bacon and cheese omelet with rye toast. After pouring herself coffee, she said to follow her to the bar. She went behind the bar, grabbed the TV remote, and put on the local news. She left the sound off. We watched. The TV cameras panned between the front of the warehouse with the bashed-in door and the semi, then to the burned hulk of the trailer across the road. The text scrolling across the bottom said, Seven dead and two wounded in an apparent robbery gone wrong. After a long silence, she asked, Are you all right? Is Kate? All of our friends are all right, perhaps even happy. J.R., you don't seem happy. More like someone beat you up. I'm happy to be alive. I'm happy to see you and the pups. That seemed to satisfy her. Enjoy your breakfast. I've got things to do. I took my phone out and sent a text to Detective Holland. Kate's surveillance camera at Prestige International Export-Import Company recorded some of what happened last night. I'll have her put it on a memory stick. And I'll Chapter 16 It was a beautiful evening. I was on the back deck of my boat. Apollo and Zeus had just finished their dinner and were curled up at my feet. They heard it and were on their feet, tails wagging long before I heard. Kate parked her motorcycle and the dogs greeted her at the gate on the back deck. Evening. Well, what do you want to drink? She held up a cooler bag and said, Champagne and the good stuff. She took out a bottle of Veuve Clicquot. It was a shame I didn't own any champagne glasses. She told me to stay put, and she headed below. The bruises on her face were almost gone, and her makeup covered what remained. She handed me a glass. What's the special occasion? We're both alive, for starters, and we got paid today. She took an envelope out of her purse and handed it to me. Your pay. Bones paid me quite well. I know he did, but between my fee from Threat Connect and the insurance company reward, we did quite well. Open it. There were two checks, both made out to me. The first one was for 8000 and the second was 25000 How much was the insurance reward? It was a million, 
but I had to negotiate with ThreatConnect. I told him I deserved the whole million because we found the jewelry. ThreatConnect hadn't even told us what was stolen. We figured it out. <laughs> More like you figured it out. What did you settle on? Douglas Associates would receive 250000 from the insurance money. My invoices would be paid in full. They agreed to give me future work and be a reference. The $8,000 check is what I billed them for your time and expenses. And I hope you didn't have to itemize my expenses. I was thinking of ammunition and... This has been Dead in Her Boots, an absolutely gripping J.R. Steele detective murder mystery, book two, written by Bradford G. Wheeler, narrated by Russell Newton. Copyright 2022 by Bradford G. Wheeler. Production copyright by Bradford G. Wheeler. More information regarding today's book and the author can be found at audible.com or amazon.com. With an eclectic collection of water-cooler knowledge, inspirational stories, and motivational thoughts from some of the newest audiobooks on the market, this has been the Voice Overwork Podcast, brought to you by Newton Media Group, a family of creative services.